Good evening, everybody. You know, it's, um, I said the word this morning, I said wait, weighty. It's always weighty to be in front of this pulpit, be in front of this people that are truly like Bereans. So, you know, as uh, Jonathan was singing, I was thinking about the priority that you all have for the Word of God, and that's why you're here tonight. And even down to the very music, Jonathan, he texts me this week and asked me what I'm teaching on, and I know why, because he wants to pick a song that can go with the, the message, and it's so important to really have everything set up just the way that we show how God's Word is absolutely supreme in our life, and that's why you're here. And that's, that's why I'm here, and that's why we're going to take our time to walk through the Scriptures. And it's been a long day. My son, he asked me, how long is the message going to be, Dad? And I said, it's going to be eternity. You remember? <laughs> Pastor Dom told you the definition, right? Well, you know, before I got to that, I, I tried to explain to him, you know, 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 20 minutes, I don't know, something like that. He's like, five minutes, Daddy? Five minutes? Five? So he didn't understand, so I told him eternity. And then and now he understood. That was long. Okay, that was long. But I think we're setting a precedent now. We don't start at 5.30 anymore. I think we start around 5.40. So I get 10 extra minutes, don't I? Yes, I think so. All right, so, um, you know, if you've been, if you've had the opportunity to pass my way recently, you might have asked me, hey, how are you doing, Tim? And I might have said simply, hey, I'm doing great doing good. I might have given you the generic male answer, not really any articulation of what's going on in my life. Well, if you would have asked my wife what's going on in her life, she would have just kind of sat up nice and straight, and then she would have said, well, I'm pregnant. Allison is pregnant, and that is, uh, that's my way of saying good, great, and unless you ask me something specifically, I'm not going to answer your question specifically, but it's such a joy to be with my wife, and, you know, we've been through a couple miscarriages, so it's a wonderful thing to have a pregnancy right now, so I know she, as I, would want your prayers to make sure this pregnancy is sustained, but also we're, we're overjoyed, and of course, for the little boy Calvin, he needs a little brother or sister. He cannot be an only child. He's like me. If I were an only child, I would have been worse off than what I am right now. So we cannot let Calvin be an only child. It's not good for his soul. All right, so go ahead and grab a copy of your scriptures for me. We're going to open up to Psalm 1, and then we're going to pray. So we'll pray first, and then we'll read. Father God, we are grateful for this building, this structure that you've allowed us to freely gather and worship your name, to give honor to your name, Lord. You know, as we look out into the bay, we see the, the mountains, the trees, the birds. They're really just testifying even better than what we can sometimes of your glory and your majesty. But then, Lord, we have your word. We have your word, which does an even greater job than your creation. It gives us specific details into your majesty and what you want us to know. How an awesome thing for us to have the privilege of the holy creator of all eternity, eternity past, eternity future, revealing himself to us. And Lord, we pray for, for you to illuminate our minds tonight, for us to walk slowly and intentionally through this psalm, for us to be diligent about every detail 
and to think deeply about what we're going to be hearing tonight and how it applies to our life specifically. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, we're going to be in Psalm 1, and our focus for tonight is just going to be on the first three verses. And I know you probably think, wow, first three verses, that's it, Tim? You can't fill the time? Well, I think we can fill the time fine with three verses. Psalm 1 is very weighty. Again, that's probably my favorite word when studying through the psalm right now. But as we begin reading, we'll kind of talk about the theme, and then I'll give you some specifics before we start. So Psalm 1, let's just read the whole text, and we'll focus on the first three verses. Verse 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So immediately, one of the things that differentiates this psalm from a lot of other psalms, is the absence of a superscript. The superscript is simply a way that we can get a little more detail from who the author is and also what the circumstance may have been around the writing of this psalm. So we don't have that. So the introduction is going to be kind of short, but that's okay. We don't got lots of time, and we don't need to speculate where we don't have any other information from God. But what everybody can agree on with the psalm is the type or the category of psalm. This psalm happens to be a wisdom psalm. So when we're approaching this psalm, we want to understand what the function is of a wisdom psalm or what we would understand as a proverb. And from the original word that we get the word proverb from, we can get a better idea. So the root word from when we get proverb means to rule or provide an authoritative word. It really becomes a comparison or a parable. It's like a test. That's what a proverb becomes. And as we look at Psalm 1 in its entirety, we see the main theme to be a contrast, a contrast of two ways of life, specifically the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And before the psalmist begins his instruction on what this wisdom is that he wants to impart, he wants to entice us. And he does this by one simple word, the word blessed. Now, if you were a Jew back in that day and you would have read this phrase, you would have been kind of surprised about this phrase, the word blessed. Normally, it comes from two Hebrew words that we translate into the word blessed, the first being barak, barak. It gives the idea of receiving something favorable. So when we say you have a divine blessing, that's what the Jew would have normally understood. Yes, I am barak. I am a Jew. I am chosen by God. But the psalmist doesn't use that word here. He uses the word asher, asher, asher. 
gives the idea of somebody looking on, somebody looking on at something truly desirable. There's an appreciation. There's something that the psalmist is telling you to look on at and compare yourself. So again, the theme of the text went the test. And we can get a better sense of this word. And I don't want to leave this word too quick, quickly. We want to make sure we address this word completely. So 1 Kings 10 verse 8 is another area where this word is used. If you want to turn to it, you don't have to. But I'm going to read it to you. Just to give you a little background, 1 Kings 10, this is when the queen of Sheba is going to visit King Solomon. And she heard about his wisdom. She wants to see if this wisdom is real. So she puts him to the test. And after her assessment, this is what she says of King Solomon and his wisdom. 1 Kings 10, 8, she says, How blessed are your men. How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. She's using the same word. She is not asking a question. It's not how blessed are they? How? How? How blessed? No, she's making a claim. And there's something that this claim should be making you want to do, the onlooker, when she makes this claim. And a couple more verses down in verse 23, here's how the claim should take root. So a little background again. By this time, the kings of all the earth would have heard about King Solomon and this wisdom. And this is what it says in verse 23. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. All the earth was seeking his presence. Not just hearing. Not just wanting to sit around and think good thoughts about Solomon's wisdom. No, they got to have it. They got to get there. And they've heard about it. And they're not just going to stop and sit there and leave. They're actually going to pay him tribute. They're going to realize the importance of this wisdom that Solomon has that is practically running his whole kingdom and making him utterly successful, greater than all the other kings of this earth. So they got to have it. This is, this is the word blessed. This is the word that the psalmist is trying to get across to you. And I don't think there's any other better word in the English language that helps bring this understanding about than the word envy. Oh, you say envy. Envy, that's a bad word. Oh, that's a negative word, isn't it? Well, here's the definition. Painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another joined with a desire to possess the same advantage. Oh, yeah, it still sounds negative, right? Well, here's Aristotle, the instigator, I mean the philosopher. He says, stirred by the thought of those who have what we ought to have. Okay? Pain? Resent? Something I should have? Well, you know, Jesus uses the same word. On the Sermon on the Mount, probably the most important sermon ever in the history. He says this, the Greek word for our word in the Hebrew, he uses, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You see what Jesus is saying here? He says, it's not a bad thing to be discontent when good or righteousness is not apparent in your life. It is not a bad thing to have pain for the fact that your life does not match up with the righteous standard of our holy God. That is the connotation of the word blessed here that we're getting at. And just to even point out that even in our modern age, the word blessed, the word envy is not that bad. In fact, in light of recent studies and research into the conditions in which envy occurs and how people deal with it, there's a growing body of evidence that the act to envy can actually inspire people to emulate those they envy. So listen to this. The psalmist is simply saying, Oh, to envy the man. Gather around. Listen up. Unstop your ears. Open your eyes. Take some notes. If you really want to compare yourself to something, if you really want to be painfully aware or resentful of something, this is it. This is what you should be seeking after. And if you are taking notes for tonight, here's our theme. The wisdom that is divinely provided and desperately pursued will always produce growth in godly usefulness. Again, the, the wisdom that is divinely provided and desperately pursued will always produce growth in godly usefulness. And here's our outline. Again, the, the first three verses is all we're sticking with. We're going to look at the first verse, the posture of the righteous. This is what characterizes the righteous. The second verse, the priority of the righteous. And then finally, the promise for the righteous. So, Again, follow along in your scriptures. That's our basic outline. The first verse, the posture of the righteous. So we can make three observations. Three observations in this first verse. First observation, you see somebody who's awake. He's awake. He's in a posture that's normally seen in people who are awake. Sitting, standing, walking. The second observation He's being presented with a negative direction. And then finally, the third observation, he's defending against that direction. So what do we get from this, this first verse? Well, here's a quick one-liner. Every waking moment, there's an opportunity for you to fail. Okay, pretty negative sermon this, this evening, right? There's an opportunity for you to fail because the wrong direction, the ungodly influence is everywhere. It's everywhere. So what does the righteous man do? What does the blessed man do? Well, he's actively on guard. He's actively on guard. That's his posture. And then you might ask, well, well, what is it that he's actually defending against? Well, three simple ways, three simple words that you can remember this. 
It's defending against the advice, the actions, and the attitudes of the wicked. Again, the advice, the counsel of the wicked, the actions, the path or the habitual life patterns of the sinner, and then finally, the attitudes, that is, of the scoffer, the attitude specifically against God and his righteousness. You know, I, I was thinking recently, one of the ways that you could strengthen your evangelism is to contrast the ways of God with the ways of the wicked. That is, God's advice, actions, and attitudes with the Wicked's advice, action, and attitudes. And in fact, this morning, I, I don't have to give you God's advice, actions, or attitudes because I think Dom did a great job with that excerpt from the sermon, Amen. So there's what you get when you follow God. But do you ever find yourself talking to somebody and you tell them all the mercies of God and yet they still say, I think I'm good. <laughs> I think I'm good. In fact, you might even look at their life and you say, yeah, they're not a murderer. They're not doing anything bad. I, I, I guess I have nothing else to say. Well, have you ever thought about telling them what they're vulnerable to? They're vulnerable to every other way that goes against God. Here's what the psalm says you get when you deny God. You're vulnerable to this. You're vulnerable to the ways of the wicked. I'm just going to paraphrase a few for you. Psalms 5, 9, it says, There is nothing reliable in what they say. They flatter with their tongue. Psalm 10, 2, they pursue the afflicted or needy. Psalm 17, 4, their paths are violent. Psalm 26, 4, they sit as deceitful men. Psalm 36, 1, they have no fear of God. Psalm 73, 8, they mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They are prideful. And to this all, you can cap it off right here in our psalm. Psalm 1, verse 6, we know their end. The wicked will perish. You know, this first verse has such a huge implication onto why church membership is so important. You, the individual, cannot guard effectively without the church. You cannot guard yourself effectively by yourself. And here's, here's a quick picture just to understand the idea of church discipline and what it is. Church discipline simply becomes another evangelistic effort. Listen to this. When Paul was giving the the understanding to the Corinthians of what to do on the final steps of church discipline. What is it? What is it, church? What happens? What's the final step? Deliver to who? Deliver to Satan? That's evangelism? Why did Paul say that? Here's what he was getting at. He's getting at you really want to you really want to help turn this person? You really want to go after them? Well, you got to let them go and experience what it means to be apart from the church. When they're apart from the church, they leave themselves vulnerable to any ravage that evil and Satan has to offer. They might feel fine right now. They might say that they're okay. But in the end, something's going to happen. And as we saw in Psalms 1 verse 6, their end is that they will perish. 
That is the end. This is why we even as a body collectively assemble because we're affirming the fact that we agree that we cannot do this on our own. In fact, if you want to be a member, think of it like this. You're on a big cruise ship. You ever been on a big cruise ship? They got long, there's a long way down. Somebody falls in the water. You can't talk to them. Imagine this. You want all the benefits of being in the church but not technically a part of the church as a member. Well, this is what you get. This is what you're like. You're, you're on a little line. You're trolling along that huge cruise ship. You're not even in a little dinghy. You're not even in a little raft. You're in one of those little orange lifesavers sitting there with your family, just one little lifesaver, and you don't know when the storm's coming. And when it hits you, you're not going to have enough time to get up on the side of that cruise ship. Here's the problem. If you want to stay on the sidelines, you don't want to commit to membership, well, the elders and the people, they're telling you, I want to help you. I want to help you. I can't help you when you're way down there. You got to get up in the ship. You can't just come up here when you want breakfast, when you want dinner. You can't just come up here. And I don't care if you're here for a year, six months, there's still an opportunity for you to fail. And we're not going to know about it unless we know you and unless we get involved in your life and unless you commit to share what's in your life. So this is a very, very important feature, uh, feature of testifying to what characterizes the righteous. Their posture, they are actively on guard and they are going to do whatever they can to make sure that they continue to hold purity in their own life to represent the church and they will do that with the church because that is the provision that Christ has given. But, moving into verse two, this is the priority. Here's our contrast. But, his the blessed man, the man to be envied, his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. So to understand verse 2, you've got to understand a little bit of Hebrew literature, especially in the poems. This verse is, in fact, called a chiasm. A chiasm is simply a mirror. A mirror. He wants, the psalmist wants you to see the beginning statements. The beginning statements are mirroring the end statements so that that can help illuminate some of the terms for you. You can get a better idea. And you know this. We use these in our normal language. Here's an example. You're going to help me finish this sentence. When the going get tough, the... Yeah. By failing to prepare, you... Or prepare to fail, right? Yeah, you kind of work your way down. How about a biblical one? The Sabbath was made for man, not? Yeah, you're getting it, right? So in our verse, to delight mirrors to meditate. That is, if you truly delight in something, you will meditate on it. And in the reverse, whatever you meditate on is what you delight in. You know, um, Oh, this is, this is a beautiful part of this, but I'll save that story for later. Delight. What is delight? Delight expresses deep desire. It's a desperation, a longing. Picture this. 
giving you a couple pictures. Now we're going into the air. Picture you're in, you're in an airplane. You're not in one of those jumbo planes, by the way, that can go above the clouds 30,000 feet in the air. You're in a simple biplane Cessna type situation where you can feel every brush and shiver of the wind. Not exciting, trust me. So you're in the clouds. You're consumed by a thunderstorm. And you're just going along, and that thunderstorm is just racking you. You have tons of lightning bolts flashing all around you, and the storm's progressing. You're progressing. You're shaking. You're shaking. You're shaking. All of a sudden, you drop. See, Bernoulli's principle doesn't always work in thunderstorms. The idea here, what do you want more than anything at that moment? You want to get on the ground, right? You're desperate. You're desperate for a safe haven. You want to get on the ground. This is the test. This is the crux of Psalm 1. Here's the question. What is your response to God's word? Is it just the keepsake? You keep around? You have good intentions to get to someday? You can resolve to resolve all day long. You never really get to it. Or is it that you even read the Bible daily? And does it become more of a duty rather than a delight? The fact that you read daily without any real intention of how that looks in your life and to apply it. James calls you a forgetful hearer. I don't know if it's better than a demon when he says, the demons know God, but they don't honor him. They know the Bible. They read it. They don't intend to apply it. So interesting. So what should be your response? What should be your response to the Word of God? Here's the test. What's he say? To delight is to meditate. Meditate. Okay. What is meditation? What is meditate? Well, first off, don't hyper-spiritualize this word. This is something that you do for something that's very important to you. What do you do for something that's very important to you? What? I heard some. You think about it. You think about it. You know, my son, he loves playing hide-and-go-seek. Right, Calvin? He loves playing hide-and-go-seek. And, man, he's just not very good at it. The best he'll do is get on the couch, throw a cover over himself, and I just have to prolong it a little bit just to play with him. But one day I got home. And he normally, his practice is just to go hide from me, and I have to go find him. So one day I get home, and I can't find the kid anywhere. My heart's starting to beat. I'm thinking, where is this kid? Is he on the roof? He's that crazy. So eventually, after opening every other cupboard in the house, and even thinking maybe he can fit under that sofa, and I get to the last place in the closet, and I open it up. There he is, sitting there with the cover on himself, even though he was closed up in the closet. I said, Calvin, I couldn't find you. And he said, he said, Daddy, Daddy, you know why? Because I thought about it. <laughs> I thought about it. I said, great, Calvin, you were meditating. That's wonderful. And so for biblical meditation, we actually have a good psalm that gives us a better understanding. Psalm 143.5, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. We've got three words that parallel each other to give us a good idea of what biblical meditation is. Here it is. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your doings. 
I muse on the work of your hands. The first one, remember, means this, to reminisce, a deliberate thought to dwell on, or a determined choice to recall, meditation, literally a low or soft murmur which leads to internal discussion or dialogue, muse to deeply reflect or go over something in the mind. But you know what? I think the best sense of this word meditation comes from Psalm 2, the very next psalm in verse 1. Look what it says there. The kings of the earth are devising to battle against God. This word devise happens to be the exact same word in Hebrew that is used for meditation in our Psalm 1. This is a strong indication to the practical planning process that is involved in biblical meditation. One preacher sums it up like this. He says, biblical meditation is deliberately choosing to think deeply about a passage of Scripture in order to, number one, better understand it, number two, plan how to do it. Joshua 1.8 says, meditate so that you're careful to do. So then, meditation to the word of God is our response. And that brings us finally to the promise in verse 3. And there it is at the end of verse 3. It's not hidden. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Literally. Literally. Literally, the word prosper is a great translation. It means to make prosper. There's an effort behind it. That's what it's saying. There's an effort. There's a force. There's something making you prosper. Give you a little clue. It's not of your own doing right now. And the psalmist, he furthers this analogy in the beginning of verse 3 when he talks about the tree. Not the simple fact that he wants you to be a tree, but the fact that he wants you to be or that the righteous are characterized as a well-established or planted tree. The word that's used here for planted literally means to transplant. It has the idea of picking up and moving to a more ideal spot for increase in growth. You're probably thinking, well, who is doing the work? What does make me grow? Well, can a tree transplant itself? Not any that I know. You might know, you're familiar with some of the New Testament passages where it says, you know, some seed, some water, but who gives the increase? God, right? And then how about some Proverbs where it says, the man may plan his course, but the Lord establishes his steps. Here's another one, Proverbs 21, 31. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to who? The Lord. Who's giving the increase? God. God. God, he's giving the increase. And we go a little further into this psalm, and he talks about the fruit that's being yielded in the season, and then, of course, the leaf that does not wither. What are we getting from this? Well, we actually have a great cross-reference for this verse, and that cross-reference would be Psalm 92, verses 12 through 14. It gives a possible allusion to the type of tree that the psalmist was talking about. Here's what it says. You don't have to turn to it. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. 
He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green. The palm tree may have been in view here for our psalm. Specifically, the date palm tree. It would have been a welcome sight to many travelers. They would have saw the cluster of fruit, date fruit, especially in the desert. But that's not even the important part of the tree. What would have been more important or more notable on this tree would have been every other piece of the date palm tree. In fact, every other piece of that date palm tree had some economic value. Here's what one writer observes about the date palm tree. He says this, The leaves are woven into mats, and the fibers provide thread and rigging for boats. Syrup, vinegar, and liquor are derived from its sap. Its trunk provides timber, and its seeds can be ground into a grain meal for livestock. You see, the fruit may be set for one season, but the tree continues to be useful in every season. But what's even more interesting about this tree is the fact that it continues to have a massive growth and production before showing any signs of slowing down, any signs of age. And then finally, one day, when you least expect it, it topples over with plenty of fruit still on the tree and plenty of use throughout that tree. Have you ever asked yourself, whether or not you'd want it to be a date palm tree. Or maybe looked at your spouse and you said, you remind me of a date palm tree. Not really, right? But this may be the case. This is such a wonderful illustration. Here's what George Whitfield, he gives us a little more information. Maybe it can, maybe he gives it a more pithy phrase, but it's definitely helpful. He says, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. See, really, you got to think about this. You've you got to want to realize that as a Christian, as a righteous man, as the blessed person, you are useful in every season. Every fiber of your being continues to be useful in producing fruit. It shouldn't be hard to see to the point that even in your old age, it's not the fact that you're physically old. It's the fact that we don't even see any signs of stopping that fruit production, and one day God says, all right, you're done. Come on home. And just the other day, you were doing something. <laughs> you were helping out. You were, you were serving. You were a date palm tree. You're immortal until the work on earth is done. So here, that's the end of our psalm, but now we got to talk about application. What's the application? What are we taking away from these first three verses? Well, here's a good question. We remember that this psalm is a wisdom psalm. It's a proverb. It's a comparison. It's a test. You're supposed to look at your life and then look at this psalm. Ask yourself the question, does your life match up? Are you truly doing everything that you can to guard against evil? That includes church membership. That includes being part of a church. You cannot do this on your own. Now, understand this. Psalm 1 is not a prescription. You do not... Tell your unsaved friends, all you got to do is meditate. All you got to do is this. No, this is not a prescription. You cannot transplant yourself. True faith demonstrates itself in action. 
Romans 1.17 tells us you live by faithfulness. It is not a single event that you have faith, but it continues as a way of life. It endures. When you pick up the word of God, what are you actually saying? You're actually saying, this wasn't just for my salvation. This is for my morning, my lunch, and my dinner. You have faith that continues in the word of God. That's it. That's the priority. So you say, you look at the psalm and you say, my goodness, do I really match up? Am I doing everything that I can? Well, I'm concerned I can't. Or I'm concerned that I'm not matching up. What am I to do? Well, what does Christ say? He says, he gives you a little word of encouragement. He's better than me, by the way. He does a better job of encouraging people. He says, blessed are you if you what? You're poor in spirit. He's going back to that word envy. He's saying, you know what? If you recognize that your life doesn't match up, if you recognize it and you're so painfully aware that your life does not match up to my righteous standard and you have that deficiency and you acknowledge it and you agree with my assessment, then cry out to God and tell him. Cry out to tell him. He said he won't turn you away. That's the encouragement. Then you can actually agree with God and he wants you to agree with him. Blessed are you when you are painfully aware that your spirit is poor. That's what he wants. That's what you tell your unbeliever. That's, what, that's how you encourage somebody who says, my life isn't matching up, and I'm not sure if it ever did. You say, be painfully aware, as Christ said. It's good for you. It's good to be discontent. It's good to be a little depressed about your life, and it's not righteous. It's good. But maybe you, you come to this psalm and you say, well, Tim, come on, honestly, I have a good salvation testimony. I really can't go against that. I understood. I understand what it means to, to recognize my sin. I understood what it means, uh, Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection. And I, I truly do believe that. And I feel like I'm kind of like Peter, where I just say, God, he's trying to restore me. And I'm just saying, Lord, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. You know I love you. So what do you do? How do you, how do you work through this passage? What do you get from this if you are potentially regenerate? Well, you recognize your deficiency and you repent from it. And you start doing what the psalmist said. Delight in it. Be desperate. What does that word delight means? I think we take that delight word too simply. You know, we think, oh, I'm going to delight. I'm going to go frolic in a green field or something. No, it means desperate. You're desperate for a safe haven. It's your lifeline. That's what it is. Practice approaching God's word with sincerity and desperation. That's what you can do. Practice. George Whitfield. Some say the best evangelist since the Apostle Paul. George Whitfield. The Prince of Preachers says, I cannot fill George Whitfield's shoes. That's Charles Spurgeon talking there. George Whitfield, before he was saved, he was a part of a holy club. It was actually called Holy Club. And they did lots of good things, good things that we would want to do as Christians today. He helped the poor. They visited the sick. They, 
They studied their Bible. They fasted and prayed for hours. They met with one another to make sure they're staying pure and holy. They even knew Greek. But George Whitfield looks back on all that, and he says, you know, I, I realized I wasn't saved. I, I trusted in my works for my salvation. I didn't understand that it was all Christ's work alone, and that's it. And then he, he thought to himself one day, he said, you know, I've been studying the Bible all wrong. And then ever since that moment of his salvation, whenever he went to God's word, he went to his knees. He was desperate. He knew it wasn't his eloquence, even though Benjamin Franklin was his biggest financer. It wasn't his eloquence. It wasn't his, posh, it wasn't his presence. It wasn't his voice and vocal tones. It was all Christ's work, and he knew it was found simply in the Word of God. And he went to his knees in desperation to see it because he needed it. You know, it's a, it's a very humbling thing to be under preachers who have good teaching because you just see the, the life that comes from good teaching. And, and I'm definitely benefiting at this church under the eldership here. And, uh, you know, one, one preacher, I, I took away uh, one thing he said, which really helped me in my approach to God's Word. This is what he said. He said, don't come to God's Word because you have to. Come to God's Word because you're desperate. You're desperate. Don't come because you have to. Come because you're desperate. Mothers, you have children. You have children. Be desperate for your sake and theirs. Fathers, husband, yes, you have children and a wife. Be desperate for their sake and your single person. Be desperate for your purity. Children, be desperate to honor your Father in heaven, by obeying your parents? Yes, that's all good. But what's the most important thing to God on this earth? Anybody want to take a guess? I don't, I, you don't have to. If you're not really sure, don't worry. I'll tell you. It's the church. The most important thing to God on this earth is the church. Going back to that idea of when Paul was helping the Corinthians figure out how to proceed when church discipline, he said this statement, even though I'm absent, I've already made a judgment on the wickedness. I've already made a judgment on this person. He reminded them that in spirit, I am there. It's not simply a reminder like, oh, I'm thinking about you. No, it's a reminder of the connectiveness of the body, how real it is. Now, the fact is that when they hurt, you hurt. When they're happy, you're happy. The connectedness of the body, so important to God, so important. So when you come to God's word, don't simply come because you think you have to. It's a duty because God will appreciate you more. No, come because it's, it's desperate. It's in desperate need. Your church is in desperate need. You're in desperate need. Everybody around you is in desperate need. I think that's all I got for you. Let's pray. Father God, how we could just stay here all night and how we could just go verse by verse and word by word and line by line. 
And Lord, it's, it's practically like we did it today. We were here early, and now we're here late. And Lord, it's exactly what you want us to be doing, to be a part of your church, knowing that, that we can't do this on our own, that we need to come together and gather as your holy bride, present ourselves pure, to really know the depths of your word, and Lord, I know that we, each of us as an individual, woefully fall short, woefully fall short daily. But such is the grace of your church that we could come together and link arms and really see that together we can prove you to be holy and pure. That's why the priority is in your word in every church that we go to. It's really simply to present your bride pure. And Lord, that is our focus. That is your, our priority. And if there are any in here who has any doubt and question as to this priority in their life, I pray, Lord, that you would convict them and that they would be open and honest with themselves. They would be open and honest. And they would find a brother. They would find a sister so that we can begin helping them to make amends. Father, in this I pray, amen.